Once again, we honor the living God as we recognize him and the trinity of his sacred person to be eternally worthy of glory, worthy of high honor, worthy of praise. We, with gratitude to him, give him blessing this evening. Grateful for the privilege to worship him. We appreciate this worship team that has led our hearts in the praise of our God and grateful for the, the kindness of God to us through his people. And as Brother Rod was talking about the conference and uh, about, I guess, somewhat coming full circle back here to Lewisburg, uh, we'd like to say a special thank you to Reformed Baptist Church for their kind hospitality. Pastor Les. Amen. We're appreciative of how graciously they have hosted us back in September and then again uh, this occasion. And I remember so well the Cowan Conference Center and uh, dear ladies there who fed us so well and looked after us so lovingly. And uh, we're just grateful for how God manifests his goodness through his saints. Amen. God is indeed grateful, gracious to us, and we're grateful to him. Uh, I am a little bit disappointed, though, after Brother Rod's comments. I was hoping when he said something about God raising up young men, he was going to mention me. <laughs> but I guess I'm not far behind him with gray in my beard. I'm a little ahead of him in some other departments, though. <laughs> but white hair becomes you, brother. Uh, but we are grateful for young men whom he's raising up and for the fact that God is putting the fire of his word in their bones. It's certainly good to see. I know John's heart is gratified by those things. He's mentioned that before. But we are, we are thankful for the kind mercies of God to us. It is good to see each of you and uh, bless the Lord for time to renew fellowship together. Uh, I do want to do something that I meant to do in the afternoon sessions, and then we want to turn to the topic at hand. Uh, but there was a hymn of Brother Toplady that as we were speaking about particular redemption, I wanted to share. And I'm going to do that at this juncture, even though it's after the fact as far as the message goes. Uh, but some of you are familiar with this hymn, I know. Augustus Toplady, who wrote Rock of Ages, who wrote, uh, well, a great hymn about perseverance. And I can't remember the name of it right now, but the tune is Converse for some who sing it. Uh, I to the end shall endure. That's one of the last stanzas. Some of, what is it, brotherness? Uh, a debtor to mercy alone. Yeah. Grand hymn of Brother Toplady. Well, this is another of his that I believe is just so outstanding. And it speaks specifically to this element of the particularity of redemption. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. Nor can his wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. There's assurance there, brothers and sisters, and it rests in 
the particularity of the work of Jesus Christ and the efficacy that accompanies that. So we rejoice in a Savior slain this evening, and we bless God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we have a little bit of a different topic at hand. As I mentioned to you this afternoon, I'm actually a pinch hitter. Brother Fred Zaspel was scheduled, as you know, for the sessions. There were going to be three on the doctrine of particular redemption. Uh, we chose to alter that a bit uh, in talking with Brother John. We got his nod, or at least his, well, I couldn't see him because we were talking by phone, so I didn't see the nod. And, you know, John sometimes is not too vocal, but I think he at least went, mm, you know. <laughs> But uh, I suggested this, and if you've seen it in the, in the bulletins, the announcement, does God have two wills? The reason I propose that is because there is sadly an erosion that is taking place among some who claim to be sovereign grace believers, and that erosion is a movement away from the doctrine of particular redemption. And I believe one of the reasons for that movement is because those who are moving from it won't define some place, some locus, some basis for the free offer of the gospel. And they feel that they can find that by saying, even though the scripture doesn't say this, we feel that that's where it ties in. Now, sadly, I believe even men like A.A. Hodge and others make some kind of connection there. But I don't believe that's the place that we need to look for a foundation for the free offer of the gospel. Now, some of you may dissent from what I will present tonight. I welcome you to do that if you feel so inclined, uh, so long as you're basing it on Scripture. I have no argument. But I would like to present to you the topic tonight, Does God Have Two Wills? And as we look at that, I believe it's in what we see here tonight that we will see indeed a basis for the free offer of the gospel as we present it to sinners, and we can do it passionately, we can do it with heart. We don't have to do it as one man who said he was an Amaraldian. One man said about us, we, we present the gospel tongue-in-cheek to sinners. Don't think we have to do that at all. And I believe part of that is rooted in what we will look at tonight in the will of the Lord. We'll be looking at a number of scriptures, and in some measure what I present tonight will be different from that which we looked at this afternoon in dealing with uh, the question, for whom did Christ die? But in looking at this question, does God have two wills? I'd like for us, first of all, just to give a definition of will as we find it in the dictionary. And I believe that this definition will probably meet satisfactorily with most of us. But if we were to go to the dictionary, we would find this for will. I love linguistics and grammar, so the Indo-European base of this is to wish or choose. That's free, no extra charge. Uh, 2A in the dictionary is a strong and fixed purpose, determination, and then B of that is energy and enthusiasm. Three, this is the third item in the definition, disposition or attitude toward others. And then the fourth definition is the one I believe most of us would say indeed reflects what will is as we talk about it in that sense as a noun. What, what do we mean by the word will? The particular desire, purpose, pleasure, choice, etc., of a certain person or group. Let me read that one again because we'll be looking at it, using that really as our wheel to roll this on. The particular desire, purpose, pleasure, choice, etc., of a certain person or group. And then under that, it also gives a second item B, a compelling command or decree. 
As we think about that definition and seek to use that as we ask the question, does God have two wills? What saith the scriptures concerning God's will? Concerning his particular desire, purpose, pleasure, or choice. When we reflect on that, what would the scripture give us to say in response to the question, does God have two wills? We want to look together at that. We won't restrict ourselves to the word will in scripture. We'll have some other words that we believe reflect that same idea of a particular desire, purpose, pleasure, or choice. As we do, I trust that we can give what I believe is a biblical answer to this. And of course, the question and answer time follows the coffee break. So the guns can be loaded and cocked if you don't feel I've succeeded. But brothers, there is disagreement among sovereign grace brethren about this. And yet I believe there is the need to deal with this and to answer it in the light of Scripture. We're not reading a text immediately. I often like to do that and then ask you to pray with me. Since I haven't read that text of Scripture, how about if we nevertheless call on the Father together? We bow, Father, in your worthy presence in the name of thy dear Son and through the merit of his blood and righteousness. How grateful, Father, we are that we can sing as the testimony of our hearts, it is well, it is well with my soul. Father, we know it's so because Christ has paid the price. And oh, we bless you this evening for that great Savior of sinners whom you sent. And we ask that, Father, as we look tonight to your word, you might challenge us by your word to be more faithful, to be more active, to be more engaged in taking the good news to the lost. Father, I pray you'd exercise my heart about that and the heart of every one of my believing brothers and sisters here. And Father, we pray that you'd give us some help along those lines as we consider together this question concerning your will in Holy Scripture. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, as we think together about this topic again, does God have two wills? Again, we give this definition, the particular desire, purpose, pleasure, or choice of a certain person, in this case, God. As we look, brothers and sisters, to this matter, I want us to first of all consider the truth of God as we see that concerning God sovereignly working his will effectually. I don't think we'll have any question here, but nevertheless, I want us to cover that topic in the light of Scripture. God sovereignly and effectually working his will. Really, you don't have to open the Bible far before you see that. You turn to Genesis 1, and there, placarded before us, someone has said well that you can start with the Scriptures in the beginning, God. And this mighty creator God that we've sung of, his works in creation, he walks across the stage of nothingness and creates something by the word of his power. He says, let there be light, and light comes to be. And as he says that, saying let there be light and light comes to be, he looks at the light and he says, that's good. That's our God. I love the way Vance Havner described the sovereignty of God. And this is so true against the touchstone of God's week in the week of creation in Genesis 1. Brother Havner said, God does what he pleases and he's pleased with what he does. That's one of the best simple definitions of God's sovereignty I can give you. And we see that in the beginning in Genesis 1. God did what he pleased and he looked back and he said, I'm pleased with what I've done. And that's so. And at the end of that week in Genesis 1.31, when he surveys the, the, that which he has made, he says it's very good. Like an artist who looks at his work and holds his thumb up and says, mm, 
Or if the young people were here, they could say, yes. He looks at what he's made and he rejoices in it. One reason that's so is because he's sovereign. What he says, what he speaks, what he wills comes to pass. We see that in the scriptures in other places, though, and I'd ask you please to notice with me from the Old Testament the words of Job. We turn this afternoon to Job 19. Would you look with me, please, at the words of Job 23? As we think together about the subject of God's will, let us notice, please, Job's words as he speaks of his confusion, really, about the trials that he was facing. And as he speaks of that confusion, he says in verse 8 of Job 23, I go forward, he's not there. Backward, I can't perceive him. On the left hand, right hand, I, I just, I, I can't see and behold him. Job was really confused about what was going on in his life. I can't blame him, can you? Sometimes we go through our own circumstances that throw us for a loop. And we feel what Job felt. But in the midst of Job's lack of certainty about what was going on, he was certain that God was working out his will. Please notice Job 23 and look with me at verses 13 and 14. Job says about our God, but he is in one mind and who can turn him and what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me and many such things are with him. Now, the word will isn't found here in these words, but I think we can definitely say by the word pleasure, by what Job speaks of, of what God desires here, that we have a sense that Job understands that in the circumstances of his life, all the pitches and tosses that he's going through, all the ups and downs, as he experiences those, Job is convinced that God is working out his will. He's convinced of God's immutability in it. And he's convinced that no one's going to stop God working out that will in his life. So here I believe we see again that will of God which God sovereignly and effectually works. If you would turn over with me to Psalm 115, please. On your way through the scriptures a bit with me here. Psalm 115. And please notice those opening words. Verses 1 through 3. Psalm 115 again, verses 1 through 3, it begins with those grand words, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. As we have here maybe the words of David, that's not found in an inscription, but I can only imagine David as he's on the flight from Saul, you know, running for his life, and he winds up among the Philistines, and those Philistines down there at Gath, they ask David, they say, David, you seem like such a pious fella. We can tell you're devoted to this God, Yahweh, you keep talking about. We, we realize that, but, but we're puzzled, David. You're on the move, and, you know, we, we've got our God Dagon here, and we know where his temple is. And as a matter of fact, we can see Dagon, you know. Now, now your God laid a whooping on him a little earlier in our history, you know, and we put his ark in our temple, and Dagon wound up flat on his face and cut the piece. But we can see our God. David, where's your God? David says, let me tell you where our God is. Our God's in the heavens. What's he doing, David? Whatever he pleases. Here we have really a definite statement of the fact that God sovereignly and effectually works his will. 
I remember hearing the story about Don McKinney, brother. John made reference to him, had a tribute to him in the most recent Sound of Grace. Brother McKinney's now with the Lord. But uh, brother Don had pastored an Assembly of God church down in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, a large one, and then came to the Doctrines of Grace. And of course, that led to some difficulty in the Assembly of God. And uh, I thought that might be met with a little more laughter, but anyway. Uh, a lawyer had heard about some of the struggles they were having in that community and in the church, and Don had to go see him. He was an unconverted man, and as they finished the business they had together, I understand the lawyer asked Brother McKinney, tell me, what do you folk believe about God over there? So Brother McKinney knew there was really no need in trying to go theologically into an you know, in-depth explanation. So he looked at the lawyer and he said, tell me, sir, if you were God, how would you run things? Would you let people do like they please or would you run them like you want to? He said that lawyer leaned forward out of his chair, came forward, banged the desk and said, if I were God, I'd run things lock, stock and barrel. And Brother McKinney said, that's exactly what we believe about God. <laughs> Our God is in the heavens. What's he doing? Whatever he pleases. That's our God. If we could look at another scripture yet, please. And uh, that's found over in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. We see here, as God speaks about the idols of the heathen at the beginning of this chapter, how Baal bows down, one of the gods of the Babylonians, how Nebo stoops. He tells his people that the beast fell under the burden of those idols being carried as they were led away by the Medo-Persians into captivity. But then God says, lo, I am he that carries you, even down to your gray hairs. Of course, the hymn writer in that great hymn, How Firm a Foundation, caught that. He said, even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary or graying hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs in my bosom shall they still be born. That's our God. Then in verses 9 through 11, God speaks about his will. Notice it, please, chapter 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Quite a statement of the fact that he is sovereign. Let's continue, though. I'm going to give you one more first. There, there are a number of others. We're not even going to look at some New Testament verses we have because it might almost be overkill. But I want to give you one more. The testimony. Well, you heard about the conversion of the ruler of Iraq, didn't you? You didn't? Brother John's preached on it, the testimony of a great king, Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at his testimony. Daniel chapter 4, please, verse 35. Some of you remember the story, how Nebuchadnezzar developed a condition in which he was at, literally put out the pasture. Some call it leucanthropy, which is related more to werewolves, but that's the condition sometimes given. Others would call it boanthropy because it's related to a cow. And uh, as it were, that's what this man appears to have had. 
And at the end of that period of apparently seven years when he was put out the pasture, he says his understanding returned to him. And this was his testimony. Please notice verse 34, but verse 35 is that which I would specifically call to your attention. Daniel 4 again, verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Now notice verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? That's a testimony, isn't it? Back in 1980, I attended the Council on Baptist Theology that was held in Dallas. That's where I first heard a man named John Reesinger. You may know him. But I also heard another brother named John Zins. At the time, he was ministering out in Nashville, and uh, my family took vacation out there. My dad was retiring from the company where he was employed, and they were going to honor him in his retirement, and we went out to Nashville, stayed at the Opryland Hotel. But on Sunday morning, we went to visit John at service that morning. Afterwards, we went out to eat together and uh, had a time of fellowship with him, and he shared with me how he came to the Doctrines of Grace he was a student at Bob Jones University, not noted for sovereign grace teaching, by the way. But as they've had at Bob Jones over the course of a lot of years, they've had outbreaks of Calvinism. Real flare-ups, yes. Brother Frampton's a witness there, and Fred Zaspel, Paul could be a witness. Anyway, back in 67, they had that happen. There were sword and travels all over campus, and uh, yes, contraband. Uh, Riesingarian contraband, right? They had sword and trowels all around. John, Reese, uh, John Zins was from a free will Baptist background, and his idea was, I'm not going to get involved in doctrine. We just want to go out and win souls. But he decided he had a roommate who was of that persuasion of sovereign grace, and it was such talk on campus, he decided, as he saw on the shelf of his roommate's uh, area there in the room, he saw... The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. And he said, you know, I really ought to learn something about this. And he opened the front cover of the book, and he saw written inside the front cover, Daniel 4.35. Brother Zen said, I looked at that verse, and I thought, mm -mm, don't know what that means. I ought to look that up before I read Mr. Pink. And he opened Daniel 4.35, and he read these words. He doeth according to his, excuse me, let me quote it all. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing before him. Or nothing, excuse me, I'm adding to it now. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? John said, that settled it right there. The rest was history. He went home that summer and read New Park Street's pulpit, transferred to Covenant College, and his life became radically different. But one verse out of Scripture, really, caused him to behold the sovereignty of God. This verse, Daniel 4.35 he works his sovereign will, as we've sung in the words of Brother Cooper. Now, that, brothers and sisters, could be amplified. That, that testimony, that witness could be amplified by a number of scriptures. But I'm going to, at this point, ask you that you'd think with me along a different line. We could give you scriptures from the New Testament that speak about Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Jews, that is Israel, and all the Gentiles 
gathered together for to do what Acts 4 tells us? Whatsoever thy hand had appointed before to be done. So the New Testament witness lines right up with the Old Testament witness. But then I want to ask this question as we think about the topic, does God have two wills? Does this meaning that we have seen in Scripture of God's will being that which he sovereignly and effectually works, does this meaning exhaust the understanding of the will of God in Scripture? Now, if you read John Gill, he's going to give you a yes. Let me give that to you, please. After discussing the preceptive will of God, he says this, John Gill from his body of divinity. And I'm not worthy to polish his shoes, by the way, but I'm going to dissent from him. The decreeing will of God is only, properly speaking, his will. The other, that is his perceptive will, is his word. This is the rule of his own actions. What Mr. Gill is saying then is there's really properly only one will of God in the scripture. Now, again, who am I to disagree with Mr. Gill? But if that doesn't satisfy scripture, I have some proper basis for disagreeing with Mr. Gill. And here's where I think we need to exercise great caution, particularly in Calvinistic circles. For instance, Mr. A.W. Pink made this statement. I read it with my own eyes. Mr. Pink made this statement. God never forgives sin. God forgives the sinner. He punishes sin. And while in my heart of hearts understanding him, I want to say amen to that. The scripture says again and again, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Now, I understand what Mr. Pink is saying, but brothers and sisters, I want to be careful not to believe the word of Mr. Pink over the scriptures. Because when the scriptures tell me God forgives sins, and Mr. Pink says God never forgives sins, although I appreciate Mr. Pink, I'm going to line up with the word of God. May I give you another example? Mr. MacArthur got in trouble in the late 70s because of a statement that he made, not his bleeding, but his dying. Some of you may be familiar with that controversy. Fundamentalist tried to do something to him with that. And they attacked him very viciously, really. One, one magazine published the article about his, not his ble bleeding, but, not, but his dying. They published it in their final issue. And when he wrote back to say, let me have equal time, they said, we're sorry, but the magazine's gone out of print. <laughs> That's the way to deal with it sometimes, you know. But Mr. MacArthur made this statement. It's not the blood of Christ that saves us, it's the death of Christ. And while I appreciate his thought, there are too many scriptures in the word of God that talk about being saved by his blood, cleansed by his blood. I'm not going to get on that horse. I believe what Mr. Cooper wrote in that grand hymn, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. What am I saying? I'm saying Mr. MacArthur spoke, I believe, unadvisedly. For all his good intentions and his desire to define 
what he meant. It was not the way to go. I've heard some sovereign grace brethren whom I dearly love make this statement sometimes in conferences. Don't you say I found the Lord? He wasn't lost. You didn't find him. He found you. And my Calvinistic heart wants to jump out and say, Amen, brother. And yet I find statements in Scripture when God says, You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Who am I to question God when he gives that promise to seekers? What I'm saying is we've got to be careful. Although we see something that appears to line up with Scripture, we've got to be careful lest we go beyond Scripture in what we claim to believe about Scripture. And brothers and sisters, I would submit that is true with regard to this question of God's will. For again I ask, what saith the Scriptures concerning God's will, that is His particular desire, purpose, pleasure, choice? If I could illustrate it for you before we look at some Scripture, I have in times past read the writings of Minnow Simons, one of the early Anabaptists. Minnow Simons in his writings was greatly offended by a statement of the Swinglians, as he called them. They would have been the followers of Elric Swingley in Zurich and others. Some of the Zwinglians said this, David did the will of God when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, is there a sense in which that's true? As far as God's sovereign, effectual will, I believe it is. But I will not make that statement unless I'm quoting the Zwinglians. I take as much exception to it in one respect as Minnow Simons did. Because that's a careless statement. That's a statement that I want to be careful with. Because there is a will of God that says, Thou shalt not Commit adultery. And I believe that's an expression of his will, purpose, desire, and choice as well. And lest I fall to one side in asserting his sovereign effectual will and miss that other side, which I believe is as well an expression of his person and heart and character also. I don't want to fall to the wrong, to fall only to that side. Now let me give you, if I may, some scripture here that I believe will back up this other aspect of the will of God, particularly as we start out with the matter of what David did. Turn with me to the last verse, please, of 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. As we read chapter 11, you know how it begins at the time when kings go out to battle. David remained in Jerusalem. As he's in Jerusalem, he goes out at evening, spies a beautiful woman bathing, calls for her, has relations with her. She finds out that she's expecting the time of her impurity was over, so that was the right time for her to conceive, and that's what happens. And then Uriah comes back, and Uriah won't be fooled into going down to his house, so David sends him back to the battlefield with a letter to Joab that is his own death warrant. And as he's put in the thick of battle, the troops withdraw, and Uriah is slain. And then Joab sends word, Uriah's dead, and David takes her in the house. And throughout that whole chapter, there's not one word breathed of God's thought on it till you get to the last verse. And if you would, please notice with me the words of verse 27. 
And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Hebrew literally would read was evil in God's sight. And here I believe, brothers and sisters, we see something that gives us that other aspect, that other side of the will of God. That not only do we see the will of God, which he sovereignly and effectually works, that scripture would give us basis for saying yes to. But on the other hand, there's also that side of God's will in which there is a pleasure on his part concerning the right and proper moral action of men who are his rational creatures made in his image. And when you and I do right, when you and I honor him, God is pleased with it. Now you might say, but Brother David, the natural man, he can't do a thing to please God. I'll grant that. And yet the scriptures say some things that I'd like to ask us to consider. Before we do that, in Proverbs, let me ask you to turn to Psalm 40 and let's see the will of God as it's expressed there from that other aspect, please. Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Again, Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. And these words, of course, are put on the lips of our Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 10. They speak of him ultimately, but notice them as they appear in the volume of Psalm 40. Verses 7 and 8. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Of course, ultimately these words speak of our Lord Jesus. And as he enters the world, this is what he came to do. But as we look at the word will there as it appears in verse 8. Notice the Hebrew parallelism. It's in English too, but Hebrew is big on parallelism. And there is here a a synonymous parallelism that we find in verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God. What is that will? Yea, thy law is within my heart. What does the scripture parallel here? The scripture puts God's revealed will in his word, the Torah, the law, the instruction for Israel, puts it right as being equal to or parallel with his will. In other words, the word of God in its mandates, its commands, its moral instruction for us, It is God's will also. And that, brothers and sisters, is something we need to factor in in looking at the sovereign, effectual will of God. Let me ask you to look, please, also at Psalm 143 and verse 10. Psalm 143 and verse 10. we look at Psalm 143.10, we read these words, a great prayer for every one of our lives. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Notice that first phrase, teach me to do thy will. Now, it's obvious that the psalmist can't be talking about God's sovereign effectual will because we don't have to be taught to do that, do we? He's talking what? Concerning that obedience to God that we desire to see because we can say as he says here, thou art my God. You're my God and because of that I want to honor you with my life. So please, Lord, teach me to do thy will. And it's seen further in the fact that in the verse he says, thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Lord, show me how to walk uprightly. Teach me to do thy will. 
Now here again, we have that will of God that would be with regard to God's moral character, what he is pleased with and desires from us, his people, who are his morally accountable creatures. We see it in those words that I mentioned from Proverbs. Turn over with me, please, there. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11 in verse 1, and this is not the only time that we find this in Scripture, but uh, in, the, in the Proverbs, but just for an example. Proverbs 11.1, 1, A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now no man can please God in the flesh. And yet, when a person seeks to live honestly, to use a just weight, you know, you heard the story about the butcher. Somebody walked in and they wanted a chicken. He had one on the counter. He took it out and flipped it up on the scale. And they said, hmm, I wanted, I wanted a little bit bigger one. Well, he only had one, so he took that one, flipped it under the counter, and then flipped it back up and put a little thumb on it. And they said, I'll take that one. And then they said, on second thought, I'd like both of them. <laughs> In the case of God here, we see the psalmist, uh, the, the Solomon rather, saying, a false balance is what? An abomination, a hateful thing to the Lord. But a just weight, that is a, an equal, a fair weight, is his delight. It's something he takes pleasure in. Now, John Piper touches on something of this in The Pleasures of God as he talks about how God is pleased with public justice. Is that true? I believe it is. And it's sad that liberals were the ones who supported the civil rights movement. It's sad. Liberals were the one who jumped behind it and said, yes, we believe that you as blacks shouldn't be disenfranchised from your civil rights here as, as United States citizens. What did fundamentalists do? Oh, we don't get into that social gospel. That's an easy way to get out of being right, isn't it? And they justified a lot of ways. Some men said black folk don't have souls and, you know, all kinds of things. Well, they're under the curse of Cain, but all Cain's descendants died out in the flood, so that one won't roll, you know. What was wrong? Well, I believe sometimes we lose sight of the fact that God takes delight when we morally please him. Now, I can't fit all that in with the fact that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But I believe God is honored when marriages are safer and sounder, even if the husband and wife aren't saved. I believe God's honored when a man doesn't step out on his wife, doesn't get drunk, doesn't beat her, doesn't cheat on his taxes, even though he may not be saved. I can't fit all that in, but I believe what the scripture says here. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. A just weight is his delight. In other words, there is that which God is pleased with because his character reflects justice his character reflects righteousness and equity and he wants us who are his moral creatures even though fallen in adam he wants us to reflect that and there's a desire there is a a delight there is a will that he has concerning that but the thing about that will is he suffers it to be broken and yet, I would say to you in the light of Scripture, it is still an expression of His will. It is still the will of God. 
There are other scriptures we could give because of time. I won't ask you to turn there, but in Matthew 6.10, our Lord told us to pray what? You remember the prayer he taught us his disciples, don't you? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May thy name be set apart as holy. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That can't be talking about his sovereign decretive will, can it? Because that's being done and worked out according to Daniel 4.35. But he taught us to pray for a time when his kingdom would come. And as his kingdom comes to earth, what will happen? His will will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. There's an expression of his will which is not his sovereign effectual will, but rather his will of desire. That which pleases him morally, which he would delight to see done on earth. We see it as well as our Lord Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of heaven, thank you, but what? He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Well, if that's the sovereign effectual will, everybody's going to heaven because every man's doing the sovereign effectual will of God, right? But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that will that God delights in from the standpoint of his moral character, his justice and righteousness, which he would want to see in us. But he suffers that will to be broken now. That will of desire. We see it in other passages when Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye abstain from fornication. Sadly, not all believers do that. And yet, Paul says, this is the will of God. And later in that fifth chapter, he'll say, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, I don't do that. And yet it's still his moral will for me and for you to realize that behind a frowning providence, he hides a, a, a smiling face and to say, I give you glory, Father. No, I hadn't finessed that one yet. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. I don't say, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. I'm going to bite my lip. Sometimes I don't. You see, his will is, and again, that's his moral will. Why do I stress this? Because the scriptures, I believe, give us an equally valid basis for speaking of that moral desire that God has in his heart of hearts. It gives us that basis for saying, yes, that's his will too. And yet we know that will doesn't always square up with that sovereign effectual will that we've also looked at. Now, having said that, let me bring things to conclusion and then make some other application with some scripture and then we'll have a coffee break. <laughs> and uh, I'm going on over to my house that I'm staying at tonight after the <laughs> coffee break. <laughs> let me conclude, though. If in any sense we understand what God commands, if in any sense we understand what God commands, as reflecting his moral character, then we must also understand it to be an expression of his desire, purpose, pleasure, choice. Now, I don't care where you come in on the continuum or continuum, if you'd like that. I prefer the Latin pronunciation. 
I don't care where you come in on the continuum. At some point, you're going to have to say that what God commands is an expression of something about him. Now, you may say it's not what he wants, but he still commands it. Well, to me, that's the cheater's way out. But it's still something he commands. So in that sense, it's some expression of him. And I believe men who don't want to face this matter of his will, they'll try to play a shell game and say, yeah, he commands it, but he really doesn't want it. He only commands it so that sinners can be the deeper damned for not doing it. I don't believe that. He commands it, but doesn't will it, some say. You can't have it both ways, for his word says he commands it because it pleases him. He commands it because he wills it. From the standpoint of philosophy, some would object metaphysically and say, well, God is a simple, unified being, and you're introducing complexity into his being. Well, I believe biblical metaphysics presents a different view of God than philosophical metaphysics would. Try to, try to square the Trinity with philosophical metaphysics. Isaac Newton, I don't believe, think, was a believer. He loved the Bible, but he could not accept the Trinity. They made him a professor at Oxford against their own statement of faith. But he never embraced the Trinity. That mathematician couldn't see it. It, it, it befuddled him to think that God could be what we say, three in one. He was a mathematician. He was a great mind. Biblical metaphysics throws philosophical metaphysics out the window. I can't square it all. But I know this. God says he's a trinity in unity. Then I'm going to say praise to the Father, praise to the Son, praise to the Spirit, the three in one, and honor him. And similarly, you know, with regard to his transcendence. How can he be so transcendent and at the same time be so very eminent? How can he be so high and lofty, high and lifted up, and at the same time the Lord is nigh to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth? I can't figure that out. I just believe it. I'm glad that the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity also dwells in the heart of the meek and lowly. I don't know if philosophical metaphysics will straighten that one out, but I believe it because it's biblical metaphysics about the character of our God. Let me conclude there. How does this touch on the issue of the gospel? How does this touch on the free offer of the gospel? Well, I read in words that Ezekiel gave us something that I believe some can't fit into their theology, even though they say strongly they believe in the sovereignty of God. Turn with me to Ezekiel 18, please. Ezekiel chapter 18. Notice, please, the words of our God there. Ezekiel 18, the last two verses, verses 31 and 32. Our God says there to Israel, again, Ezekiel 18, verses 31 and 32. Our God says to Israel, cast away, all your, cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Can sinners make themselves a new heart? No, they can't. Had they better? Yes, they had. You and I won't do it unless grace gives it to us. But I want you to see the God who speaks here. The God who looks to a people that is perishing and says, Why will ye die? 
And then he goes on to say, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And if I have a hyper-Calvinist heart, God used these words to break my hard heart. So that I'll look at sinners who are perishing. And I'll get in some of the heart of God in me that will make me say to sinners, why will you die? Why will you die? And then I can tell them, God says, he has no pleasure in your death, O wicked one. God says, he has no pleasure, he has no delight in that. Turn, turn, turn ye! I'm afraid sometimes we've gotten so Calvinized that we can't weep over sinners. Whitfield, Whitfield said to the sinners he preached to and the colliers would run tracks down their cheeks, their coal-stained cheeks. He'd say to them, if you won't weep for yourselves, I will weep for you. He poured out his heart in his preaching. God gave him enlargement, a heart that I believe we need in our generation. And I don't point a finger at you without three pointing back at me. I need that enlargement. I need heart that will weep like Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I need to be able to look at a world that's perishing and get a sense of what God says when he says, why will you die? Why will you die? Say, square that with this sovereign effectual will. I can't, but I'm not going to lop this out of Scripture. To accommodate it to his effectual will. I'm going to bow to both and say, boy, you're a big God. I'm going to bow to both and say, you're bigger than I am. I can't wrap my arms around this, but what I can wrap my arms around, I appreciate. That's our God, I tell you. God is the one who says in Deuteronomy 5.29 about Israel, oh, that there were a heart in them they would fear me that it might be well with them you know that he had to say that because his sovereign effectual will chose at that time not to give Israel a heart and yet as he chose to do so as he looks at him he says oh that there was such a heart in them can you can you square that I can't square that but I'm not going to throw it out now many say that when we do this we're, we're bringing up inconsistency in God R.L. Dabney, you know, labored with this, that Southern Presbyterian theologian. And, and Dabney used the illustration of Major Andre. He was involved in the Benedict Arnold cabal that was going to turn West Point over. He was caught as a spy. He was a splendid man. The words of the hymn, The Hiding Place, I understand, were found on his person as he was arrested as a spy. People argued with Washington. He's a good man. He's a good man. Don't put him to death. He doesn't deserve to be executed. Washington looked at the reality of their argument, felt great sympathy for Major Andre, but ultimately commanded his execution as a spy. Mr. Dabney makes the point there may be some that would say Washington was insincere. Washington really, really didn't have any sympathy for Andre, or he wouldn't have willed that he die. You and I know that's not true. You and I might see a criminal that we know deserves to die and yet find pity in our heart as we see him going to his death. Is that maybe because you and I are God's image bearers and maybe our heart reflects something of his heart? Brother Robin Duhamel, who's here with us, shared with me some years ago these words that a judge 
statement a judge made when he was sentencing Ted Bundy to death, that serial killer, that mass murderer, the judge said this, you're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer. I would have loved to have had you practice in front of me. You went another way, partner. Take care of yourself. A human judge felt that for a bright young man whose life became so sordid that he became a mass murderer. Is it possible that the judge of all the earth feels that? Can't explain it, but I believe it's so. And I believe that you and I, as God's people, need to have something of the great heart of God. Rolf Barnard, in one of his tapes, said this. I've never heard Rolf Barnard in person. John, I know, did. Others of you may have, but Brother Barnard has this statement in one of his sermons on tape. Speaking as a Calvinist to Calvinists, he says, don't you, I wish I could preach like him, don't you get you a doctrine that hymns got in. He said, don't you get a doctrine that will keep you from telling the vilest maggot who ever wriggled and writhed on his road to hell that God will save him if he'll come to Jesus. And he went on to say, John Calvin wrestled with this truth about God's will of desire and will of decree. And he said, most Calvinists have except Calvin. And he was right. And because of that, I believe we've gotten sterile. Thank God for the emphasis in this conference on George Whitfield, a man who believed these truths but wept over sinners. May God give us that kind of heart, brothers and sisters. And as we follow our great God, may we go on to love his will and to realize, too, how those wills meet at Calvary. God's decretive will God's revealed will, his perceptive will, and that will of purpose, they meet at Calvary. And because of what happened at Calvary, guess what? The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And one day, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it is, as we looked earlier this afternoon in Particular redemption in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Thank God. It's committed to Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's going to work out. One day his will will be done. Thank you for your time and thank you for your patience.